As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. show and a show in which we have questions listener submitted questions the best kind of questions my name is ryan bailey joining me today we have a man who's been subjecting his one-year-old to tom waits records on car journeys <laughs> taylor rockwell goodness taylor man she she really actively despises podcasts if i try to listen to a podcast or talk radio she is not into that it has to be music and she likes yeah she likes weird stuff she was definitely enjoying tom waits she likes some pop smoke. She likes punk a lot. So, so far, I feel like I'm, I'm being a good and maybe bad dad at the same time. Uh, listener, if you're not familiar with Tom Waits, think like Bob Dylan as an angry hobo with a throat infection. And <laughs> yeah. you're some way there. <laughs> uh, he's, uh, he sings the second season of The Wire and I believe is uh, a character in Trek 2. There you go. That's what he's, I got for you. He does, does he do the Peaky Blinders tune as well? I think. Maybe? Yeah. Oh, no, that's Nick Cave, I think. Oh, maybe it's Tom Waits yes. and Nick Cave. Yeah, I think you might be right. You might yeah. be right. Either way, weird to play to your one-year-old in the car, Taylor. Hey, hey. I, I just appreciate <laughs> this introduction because if listeners, uh, I guess they wouldn't have heard that, but I need them to understand how annoyed Ryan was with me before we started recording. <laughs> yeah, let's move on from you. Also, here is a man who almost blew up his house before this recording by plugging in his laptop, Grant Ruthven. Uh, I, I, I wish that was an embellishment of what happened, but yeah, that is that is pretty much what happened. I got sent a... Uh, a video by a friend recently of a, I think it was a school in, I swear I'm going somewhere with this, a school in Kazakhstan where for a Christmas concert they had fireworks instead of they meant to buy sparklers. Uh, <laughs> and that's pretty much what happened before this recording where I plugged in my laptop and everything blew up. Uh, so just to be clear, you spent several thousand dollars um, more than you spent on a soccer ball on a laptop, which has just blown up literally in your face a matter of minutes ago. I'm 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 making this sound funny, but it's not because that's pretty bad. Yeah, well, well, several thousand is maybe a slight exaggeration, but it, yeah, not a, not a particularly cheap laptop. I was due an upgrade. I'd had my previous laptop for five years, and uh, now it seems that this laptop has lasted one month. Graham, where is the old laptop? Like, is, is it a suspect in what's gone down here? Like, you have the old one, it's around for a while, suddenly you get a new one, and then it explodes. I suspect foul play. Yeah, it, it's it's in the corner looking a bit suspicious. There it is. Oh, there God, it is. I've, just, I've just figured out what happened. So before we recorded, Taylor sent a, a clip of Tom Waits on, on the group chat. Graham's pressed play and it's made his computer blow up. That's oh, what yeah, it was. that's what it is, yeah. There we go. Uh, completing our lineup, we have a man who has neither electrocuted himself or been listening to gnarly singers, Joe Lowry. Hello. Hello, guys. I'm just I'm just sad that my sabotage plan didn't work on Graham. It didn't. <laughs> oh. It failed. Lowry the saboteur. Tell me more, Joe. Uh, no, Ryan, that's not how revealing plots works. Why would I tell you what happens? That, that, you're next, bro. I'd, I'd also say it's worked pretty well, this sabotage. Uh. <laughs> that's, that's actually fair. That's actually fair, Graham. Yeah, it's a good Credit point. to Joe for the sabotage working and also learning the lesson from every James Bond villain. 
and not monologuing. He hasn't given us his whole master plan, just bits and pieces, so it keeps us involved. I like it, Joe. I like it. Taylor gets it. Be like Taylor, everybody. Taylor gets it. (laughs) Very good. I'm looking forward to how this one (laughs) unfolds, Joe, and I want to hear your evil laugh at some point in this recording as well. That'd be great. Thank you very much. Okay. I feel like we can make that happen at some point. I mean, that was your cue to do it, but okay, fine. (laughs) I I think you heard it. I think Joe's evil laugh is just him (laughs) saying, okay. Okay. Yep. Good stuff. R.I.P. Graham's laptop. In the meantime, this is a listener questions episode. What say you, gents? Shall we get to it? Uh, First one here from Richard Rolson. NWSL Championship was played on a neutral site, while MLS Cup will be played at the higher seeded team, in this case, in 2021, Portland. Which do you like better, playing a championship game on a neutral site where you can control... The factors such as weather, uh, no baseball fields in NYC and the like, or risking playing a game in Toronto in winter to allow for more fan support. A very interesting question from Richard here. Uh, we should note that in MLS Cup up to, was it 2011, they were held on neutral sites? Certainly um, uh, in MLS 1.0 games, were uh, the MLS Cup was held on a neutral site. And Taylor, I have done some math, and I think I figured out that eight of the last 10 MLS Cups were won by the host side. So it's a mighty advantage. Yeah, I mean, and I think partially that is because the the top seed, the higher seed, gets to host. So they would then be the favorite, most likely. Hmm. But I do think it definitely gives that home field advantage. It gives the atmosphere. And I think it probably builds a feeling of ceremony, of enthusiasm in the city. When we were there in Atlanta for MLS Cup, there was that feel of like something important was happening. Same thing in Seattle. I would assume it's going to be the same in Portland this time round. So I do like it for the kind of current Major League Soccer. I think the atmosphere does make the event. I think being the top seed, adds an element of pride and enthusiasm and it gets more people in the door. I do think a neutral venue allows for more planning and thus for it to be a bigger spectacle, even if you aren't going to have as many fans. But certainly coverage is better. I think attendance is probably better, at least from a neutral perspective, because you have time to plan. You know where it's going to be. You're not trying to buy tickets a week before the game. Um, and that does assume that neutrals and casuals will have interest. I think right now, with how much MLS has grown and developed, I think there is that interest. So I think they could move back to a neutral venue. I understand, though, why they probably won't, or at least won't in the near future. So if it were to be a neutral venue, let's say next year, Taylor, is a neutral Mm -hmm. venue, would it be an MLS stadium or would it be a larger, maybe an NFL stadium or a Rose Bowl or something like that? What What do you think would be the ideal setup? I would hope it stays in an MLS stadium or in a stadium that is used for MLS purposes like Seattle. Uh, but just because I think to move it outside of your own sort of setup, to me, is just a weird thing. It would be like, okay, this one time we get to use the bigger stadium. I, I don't know if that's maybe just ego, but for me, I like the idea of sort of keeping it in-house and moving it around to different areas and sort of rewarding different fan bases instead of just the ones that tend to be good year on year. Yep. Um, Graham, I'm going to ask you to stop smoking and to um, calm down the spikes on your hair from the electricity coursing <laughs> through your veins in a moment. I'll bring you into the conversation. Um, I grew up in a country uh, next door to yours, Graham, which has Wembley Stadium, the ultimate uh-huh. neutral site, if you will. Um, I quite like a neutral site. How do you feel? Yeah, I think this one is a difficult one to answer because for me, it really depends on the circumstances. I think if both sets of supporters can get to a venue relatively easily, where you would have a, a sellout crowd, I would prefer a neutral venue. I think that way you have the, the fairest circumstances to decide which is the better team. I also think the capacity uh, split crowd match creates the, the best spectacle. I think about some of the FA Cup finals and World Cup matches where it isn't just a sort of battle on the pitch. It's a bit of a contest in the stands as well, and I, and I like that. However, I, I, I do accept that having neutral venues in North America in particular is logistically difficult for fans, particularly when MLS Cup is always between an Eastern and a Western team. Mm. Um, and so that makes it very difficult. And, and I think I'm a bit of a tennis fan, as listeners might know. And I think going to a neutral venue at this point in MLS's development with this format, with the East versus West format, would risk the same mistakes that have been made in the Davis Cup in tennis, where the Davis Cup used to be played in front of fervent uh, kind of partisan crowds, home and away format. It really kind of made the competition what it was. And then Gerard Piquet bought the Davis Cup along with the Balloon World Cup. And now the Davis Cup is played at a neutral venue. It was played in Madrid 
Austria and Turin this year, and it was completely soulless. And it's lost the one thing that made it special. And um, so I think MLS needs to be a little bit careful. It's maybe, you know, like the Champions League has played, uh, fans travel from around Europe for the Champions League final, but I think we can all accept that football and and the history of these clubs that are involved in those games just make that it means they have fans all around Europe it's maybe not so difficult for them to get to it and I, I just think maybe MLS shouldn't make a premature decision to go to a neutral venue um, because it could lose something pretty special I think that that has um, that MLS Cup has at the moment you make, Graham, you make I, a good point Graham I'm sorry to interrupt there Joe but if it is about you make a good point about the east versus west I should um, add so maybe we just put it bang in the center of the country in like the desert in Kansas somewhere yeah, but then Disney you're then, it's, then, <laughs> then 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 that's not convenient for anyone. <laughs> who's who's winning out of that? Both no, sets of no fans are losing. No one can find the desert in Kansas. That's for sure, Graham. Um, uh, Joe, I'll come to you now as someone who is going to be making Portland a little weirder uh, this coming weekend as we record. Yeah, I already have. I've grown out the facial hair. I've got the beanie all ready to go. I'm, I'm ready for this trip. <laughs> no, I I completely agree, Graham, with with everything that you just said. There's tons of value in. The neutral site for particular competitions and competitions that I think have a little bit more history and can stand on their own a bit more than maybe MLS can right now. I think for this current stage in the league's development in Major League Soccer and, and to an extent even NWSL, I think there's value in having the game in a market, in a market of one of the two teams playing. And if that's the case, it makes sense to do it at the, the team that had a better regular season. I think that makes sense. At some point, though, I would love, and this goes back to, to kind of what Taylor was talking about, I would love to see MLS shift a bit more to make it a spectacle. You know, pull out ridiculous, you know, event opportunities for VIP. Like, just make it absurd. Like, the Super Bowl is absurd. The event and everything that goes into the NFL's planning of a Super Bowl starts, I mean, 18 months before the Super Bowl even is underway. There's so much that goes into setting that up and, and so much planning and creativity that can go into that. And it makes the event a bit ridiculous, but it makes it extremely entertaining for even the neutral. I don't know if MLS is there right now, but I do think that our domestic soccer leagues in the U.S., as they continue to grow and become more established, can get to that point. Hmm. So I'm getting the feeling that TSS feels that the current situation of having a, a high seed host is the best solution right now. Taylor, are you getting that? Yeah, I mean, I think that probably is the case right now, but I do think simultaneously you could try it in a neutral venue and see what happens because to Joe's point, if you have those 18 months to plan, you can build out more stuff that's going to draw in the local community, that's going to make it more of a, a destination event for people who are considering going. You, you guys you just want a half-time show, don't you? <laughs> that's, that is... Simultaneously, the thing that I do want and the thing I most don't want. I love the idea. I, w- I would love. Okay, let's do it this way. Um, the, I forget which which uh, South American championship it was, but they had musical acts from the two like uh, clubs' cities playing. So it was like uh, a team. Uh, I can't remember. It was like an Argentinian band who are uh, super good, who I listen to from time to time. Uh, but I like the idea of like a local act like of the city that's playing being involved. That could be the halftime spectacle. But I think oh. you could plan those things. Right now, I think MLS has to do a sort of like here is our generic is a harsh way to put it. But it is sort of the template for MLS Cup that we can easily put down in a city with minimal planning and make the event still happen. And there are still things going on behind the scenes and VIP events and all that good stuff, but maybe not to the level of grandeur and spectacle that it could be. But I also think planning would allow you to get more fans, would maybe get more tickets out there. And so I think it could still have a really good atmosphere, a lot of fan engagement, a lot of uh, enthusiasm and some neutral spectators there as well. I think you've nailed the halftime show there, Taylor. Bands from each city. So this year, like the Decemberists against... The strokes, not against, with the strokes. Against. No against. Wow. Against is way more fun, <laughs> yeah, Ryan. Yeah, yeah come on. <laughs> I'm, thinking of the, I, the, I'm back in the strokes in that one. Oh, okay. that's great. Okay, good. All right. Thank you very much, Richard, for that question. <laughs> to be clear, I'm backing the, the strokes to physically fight the Decemberists and win. Not to be better banned, but to actually go to war. I wouldn't mess with the Decemberists, frankly. But yeah, sure. I'm I think no, it's I'm more no pitch, for a start. I'm now picturing Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Like, this is yes. what we've turned yes. MLS Cup into. I just, just remember yeah, the Decemberists it. are in trouble. They, they, they whisper, Dandy Warhols, come in. We need some more Portland help. And, they know, definitely they'll... whisper. That is true. 
<laughs> We've gone far enough down that road. Thank you for the question, Richard. <laughs> Let's move on to the next one from Matt Koss, not Matt Goss from Bross. Thank you very much, Matt Koss. He says, my favourite player is Breck Shea. All right. But Jordan Morris is my close number two, says Matt. Uh, where can you see Morris fitting into the USMNT roster again? Who would he be competing with? And what kind of performances club slash national will he need to secure a permanent spot on that lineup? Uh, we had a little bit of chat about the USMNT roster and um, and whatnot, and a little bit of chat on Morris on the episode earlier in this feed uh, about MLS Cup and about mm-hmm. that roster. So check that out, listener, if you haven't already. But as for Morris, we uh, we know these, he tore his ACL uh, while on loan with Swansea early this year for the second time in his career, unfortunately. But he's now back, um, played out the end of the season with the Sounders and back in the USMNT camp, as we mentioned, in the roster for Bearhalter's uh, training camp coming up. Taylor, what's your thoughts on Morris and his place in this UM, USMNT, excuse me, roster? First off, I had forgotten that he tore his ACL with Swansea. It's been a while. It's been a while. All right. But that was Jordan this year Morris too. back. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Jordan Morris is back playing, though. Uh, to answer the question, I do not think he fits what Burhalter wants as a starting striker. There's been much conversation and speculation about if he could be a number nine and maybe that is a thing we see but from what we have seen Berhalter want that role to be I'm not sure that is where Jordan Morris best fits I think the temptation there is because the more logical options out wide have a bit more depth and so to some extent I think Jordan the answer to this question is he's got a long road to be an automatic selection or in that conversation because I think Berhalter would use him on the wing my guess would be as a like right-footed right-sided like wide attacker which would mean that Gio Reyna, Timothy Weah, Paul Areola are potentially all ahead of him on the left at least Christian Pulisic and Brendan Aronson would be ahead of him so I think he's in the conversation to be in the squad, or if Berhalter called in, let's say, 30 players to camp, maybe Morris makes it in there, and then we see how it goes. But I think he is sort of at, at the point, like where we are in qualifying, where we are in the kind of rounding out this squad, that he can afford to have some like okay performances, but I think he has to have more dominant or very strong performances, either as a starter or as an impact substitute to continue to be in the conversation or to at least get more of a foot in the door than he currently has. So, Joe, I had him like most likely being a right-sided wide attacker, even though he plays on the left for Seattle, because in my mind, I think of Berhalter as not really going inverted that often. What, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, we do see Christian Pulisic inverted and Brendan Aronson inverted on that left side quite a bit, but I, I still agree, Taylor. I think Morris fits maybe a bit better as a direct vertical presence on that right side. And and to get to the depth there, it's it's a hard spot to break into, right? Yep. As good as Jordan Morris has been for club and at times for country in the past, this is not a gimme for him. And he's in a tough situation, right? If, if he doesn't tear that ACL, he's probably already been involved in World Cup qualifying by now, the end of, of this calendar year. But we haven't seen him with the national team in quite some time. And, and the biggest thing, the most important thing, I think, for Jordan Morris right now in, in January as well, is he needs to be good in camp with the U.S. Yeah. national team, right? It, we're in December camp right now. That that camp, Camp Candy Cane, is already underway. I stole that from Greg Velasquez <laughs> in the Scuff Podcast. I like it quite Excellent. a bit. Camp Candy Cane's already underway. This is a chance to get get his legs back a little bit. And, and as Ryan, you mentioned, he's played some already, but not a lot, less than 300, 400 minutes, something, definitely, definitely less than 300 minutes. With Seattle, there, now's a chance to, to get under... The, the national team roster to get involved more to impress Berhalter in December, and then he'll likely be included in January, right? So these are huge chances over extended camps, longer camps than the U.S. sometimes gets for even World Cup qualifying windows, at least in terms of the number of training sessions they can have. These are great chances to impress Greg Berhalter. And if all of those things go well, and, and knowing how good Jordan Morris can be, I would expect that, that they would go well and that he would be in, in the conversation for a World Cup qualifying roster at the end of January. If those things go well, then yeah, he's competing with every winger in the pool, right? Every winger in that depth chart as we know it right now, probably not ever going to edge out a healthy Christian Pulisic or a healthy Gio Reyna. But Ariola, Aronson, Wea, absolutely. He's in, he's in that conversation. Matthew Hoppe, Conrad De La Fuente continuing to elevate himself over those players. I don't know how many wingers Peralta will want to carry in qualifying or in 
in the World Cup itself, should the U.S. make it that far. In qualifying, he's had the flexibility to add a couple of players above the 23 cap that we think of as, as traditional for tournaments. He's carried, I think, 25 players, and that was in November, and maybe right around there for earlier rosters in World Cup qualifying. So he's been able to carry an extra winger. He's been able to carry people that, that maybe he wouldn't be able to bring to a World Cup. But what that looks like after March and as we look ahead to November and December of 2022 – I don't know. It's going to be a good competition, and that's exactly what the U.S. wants. That's what every good national team wants. Have depth and leave good players off the roster. And one way or another, there are probably going to be some good players left off of that World Cup roster. Joe, we talked about um, like the ramifications of this camp and what could be the impact on yesterday's show. And I think I was approaching it from a perspective of like, there's not a ton that we can truly learn from this because it's not like one good performance means like, yep, they're in the conversation now. But... With this conversation having been had, I look at some of the names that are there, like Aaron Long, like Jordan Morris and Jossi Zardes, and I almost see it as like a preseason camp now for for certain veterans to yeah. show, you guys have been out for a while, you have some injuries, let's see how you do coming back, let's see how much rust there is, or if there's any rust at all, and if there is that sort of consistency in performance throughout camp and in that game against Bosnia, then maybe Burhalter can feel a bit more confident selecting them for World Cup qualifying. Maybe not all three of those players, but at least a few of them. But I think we have a lot of young players in there and there's opportunities to impress and show what they can bring to the table or at least show that their work is being rewarded. But then for maybe some of the more veteran ones, it's an opportunity to yeah show up in preseason and prove they can perform and prove that they deserve to be in the team. I like that, Taylor. It's kind of like the the fight for the last five or so spots on yep. an NFL roster. The NFL is getting yeah, a lot of exactly. run on, on today's show. But I think preseason is a really good analogy for this, with the actual season then being World Cup qualifiers in, in January, February, and then March. So, yeah, I'm all about that, Taylor. Joe, we've, we've discussed um, Morris here in the context of uh, as being a wide attacker here, and I know you touched, this, touched on this a little bit in the MLS Cup uh, preview episode we've mentioned already, but... Is there, is there no conversation to be had about him being a, a central um, attacker? There is a conversation to be had there. We just don't have the evidence that Baralter is really interested in that. From how he's described, how Greg Baralter has described his winger profile, he talked about this on the, the U.S. Soccer Podcast with Bobby Warshaw. And he's talked about it in the past as well. It's It's been written up a few different places. He really likes having wide attackers who will eventually come inside and be in the half spaces and break in behind the back line. And that's that's the thing that Jordan Morris is best at. He's quick. He's physical. He's aggressive. He can make those runs and really destabilize an opposing back line. Whereas as a nine, maybe he doesn't have that that refined movement in the box that Ricardo Pepe and Jesse Zardes have. He probably doesn't have the ability to read the game and drop into the right pockets that, that Jesse Zardes I think has and that Jesus Ferreira type nine might give you instead. So I just think when you're looking at trade-offs here, yeah, the U S nine depth chart is, is pretty shallow or I mean, it's sh- yeah, it is shallow. There's a bunch of names in the pool, but they're not really, you know, standing out one from another at this point. You don't really need to throw another guy who maybe won't stand out all that much in that spot, too. So I, I prefer to see him out wide and, and have him compete for, for minutes out there. Fair enough. Uh, Graham, um, Morris last played for the USMNT in the, at the end of 2019. Do you see a path back for him? Well, I guess there's there's um, a couple of players, as as Taylor and Joe say, there. You know, Pulisic and and Reyna in the wide positions probably have those nailed down. But there is there's uh, there's scope for competition beyond those places. And I think Jordan Morris, we all know that he's got the the natural ability. Obviously, the height from when he came from from college is you know a, a while ago now. But he, he's he's still a, a a very able player, and I would like to see him get a regardless of whether he makes a World Cup squad or not. I would I would like to see him just get a couple of good seasons under his be- under his belt and not have to go through these injury problems that really have kind of stunted his his MLS career all the way through. We we haven't really been able to see how good he is at MLS level because of injury. So. Yeah, I would. I would maybe if I were Jordan Morris, my focus wouldn't really primarily be on the World Cup squad. Even though getting into that squad would be fantastic for him, it would just be about getting regular minutes for for the Sounders, really. Yeah, if you were Jordan Morris, you wouldn't have blown up your house earlier, Graham. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's true. <laughs> I'm, I'm just reeling from how many uh, NFL references there have been in this podcast so far, and feeling. Very much out of my depth and hoping those uh, references stop because I don't have much to say about the Sacramento Firehawks. (laughs) Goodness me. On that bombshell, we're going to take a quick um, overtime break. I couldn't even think of an NFL thing to put in there. We'll be back shortly. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, we are taking your listener questions. Here's one from Joshua Bishop. Hey, Joshua. Joshua says, in light of Real Madrid's success in La Liga, what makes Carlo Ancelotti such a successful coach? He doesn't get discussed in the same breath as tactical masterminds like Pep, like Klopp, like Simeone, and so on. So what makes him so Good. A uh, little stat, Graham, for you here from Madrid Extra on Twitter. Including both of his spells at Real Madrid, Carlo Ancelotti now has the best winning percentage in the history of Real Madrid. 140 games, 105 wins, 75% win rate. He is a manager, Graham, who has won uh, the title in four of the top five leagues. Not yet Spain, so he would complete that feat of the top five leagues if he were to win uh, this year. And of course, he's won three Champions League titles. No one has won more than that as a coach. It would have been four if Liverpool hadn't had their way in Istanbul as well. So, Graham, why does he not garner the same respect, even though he clearly is a winning coach and a very, very successful coach? I think a few years ago he did when he was at Real Madrid and, and he was winning Champions Leagues there. I think he was mentioned in, in the same breath as, as those as those uh, managers that you mentioned there. I think the first thing to say now in 2021 is until this season, I think there was some doubt over whether Ancelotti was still a good manager at the top level. Everton fans weren't exactly gutted when he left the club in the summer. Uh, he'd done a, a mixed job, you'd say, at Napoli before that. And I think many believed Real Madrid could have done better. It very much seemed like Florentino Perez just um, sent a WhatsApp message to whoever his, his closest pal was in his, in his contacts book. And he obviously gets on well with Ancelotti. But obviously this season has gone very well for Real Madrid. They're eight points clear at the top of La Liga. So there's just something about Real Madrid that gets the best out of him and he gets the best out of Real Madrid. And I think mm. one of those things is his authority. One of, that's one of the things that I think makes Ancelotti so good, particularly at this stage of his career when he, he maybe isn't at the vanguard of, of tactical thinking. He, when you mention, you know, Pep, Klopp, Simeone, um, these guys all have a very clear tactical identity. I'm not totally sure that Ancelotti has that. In fact, one of the things that I think he's got is he's, he's a really good all-rounder. He knows how to balance attack and defense. He knows how to adapt his teams depending on the team that they're playing or the task at hand. He, they can play a possession-based game or they're very good on the counter-attack Real Madrid this season. I also think Ancelotti is a really good man manager. So look at the way that he has improved Vinicius Jr. this season, who has taken a gigantic leap forward. And I think he creates strong bonds with his players. So look at how James Rodriguez followed him to Everton. He maybe wishes he hadn't done that now, but it was the same with Alan going from Napoli to, to Everton to work with, with Ancelotti. Uh, Jose Callion went from Real Madrid to Napoli to work with Ancelotti. So wherever he goes... Players tend to follow him, and I think that's a sign of the bond that he does create with those players. So I'm not sure if, in in, in, a, in a tactical sense, the question mentions tactical masterminds, I'm not sure if, in a tactical sense, Ancelotti does deserve to get mentioned in the same breath as, as Pep and Klopp in particular, but he certainly is up there as one of the most successful managers of his generation. Yeah, Taylor, what's your thoughts on this one? He is, as Graham says, he's a brilliant man manager. He's no, he's known for that. He's known for you know prepping and getting the, the, getting results in big matches as well, and obviously able to manage squads with big egos and big talents as well. But maybe not. I like the word van, on the vanguard of tactical nous. I suppose I think is what you said, Graham. Um, and yeah. he's not quite on that same frontier, if you will, Taylor. 
Yeah, and I think maybe this is just because I like Carlo Ancelotti, so there could be bias here, but I think he probably wouldn't care if you didn't put him on that list of tactical masterminds because I don't think that is, to Graham's point, sort of what he prioritizes. I think of him, if you called him a managerial mastermind, I think he would absolutely take that because, as I understand him, he's a manager who, like, it's too easy to say is about vibes, but I, I do think that there is a similarity to be drawn to Bruce Arena in that, like, it's not about the rigid philosophy of a playing style. It's more about sort of seeing what is there and making it work as best as possible without overcomplicating things. And I think for Ancelotti, when you go back to his playing career, it's four seasons under uh, Arrigo Saki, who, with a, forgive me for the brief history lesson here, but for people who are unfamiliar, he basically is the Italian manager that stood in stark contrast to Catanaccio traditions when everybody is playing very defensive, very solid formations. Uh, it is Saki who starts going with the 4-4-2 with a lot of positional interchange, a reliance on players figuring things out. And again, Ancelotti playing in that system for four years, I think comes away from that with an idea that players are smart, players are in the game and know better than we do what needs to happen and how to make it happen. So you have to empower those players. And I think that is what he is very good at. But I think that does sort of only work when you're dealing with top, top talents who are that good and who can be expected to figure it out. And to go back to Everton and Napoli for a second, I think that's maybe why some of that doesn't work is when you're in sort of grueling slogs and fights to to stay in the Champions League spots or the Europa League spots, that's maybe not where he excels. But I think of him more as the guy who comes in and sort of is in the way that we have relegation specialist managers who come in and sort of save a club from relegation. Ancelotti is like, he can't make you run anymore, manager. When you sack the manager that made everybody do like two miles in 10 minutes every single morning, you bring him in and he makes everybody happy, but he has that sort of the fitness that's been built up to play with. And he makes this team very, very good. As I recall from his time with Bayern, by the end of that, like, there's not enough fitness. There's not enough kind of work on the pitch. Everybody was happy, but maybe not as motivated. And so a change has to happen. And I think that is what Ancelotti is really good at, is sort of empowering players, getting the best out of them. But I also don't think that that lends itself to particularly long runs, at least not in the modern era. Taylor, Taylor, you mentioned Bayern Munich there, and I love mm. this story. And there's a little bit more to it, at least from yep. what I read. After he leaves Bayern Munich, or is you know told to leave Bayern Munich, the players the reports came out that players while he was there had been organizing training sessions behind his back because they yeah. needed they needed more like they needed exactly. more in training to prepare them for games. Ancelotti gives players freedom; he gives them opportunities yeah. to express themselves on the field, and that's great. And it endears players to him. Sammy Kadir has talked about how Ancelotti would call him every day, not in not in a creepy, unwanted way, but apparently that's that was how their relationship thrived. And Kadir really enjoyed and appreciated that. Ancelotti works well with these players as a man manager, and you can see that now in his Real Madrid team. And Graham, you you already kind of hit on that, and I think that's great. You could see it in some of his past teams too. There are challenges, though, that come with too much freedom. And that goes back to the Bayern Munich story and, and all those things. He's not a tactical guru, which takes him out of that pep mold. We've already hit on that. But he does have other skills that make him really valuable as a manager. It's just about finding the balance between, okay, can I give these players clear enough roles to help us succeed without having to go way too far towards the tactical, you know, really detail-oriented end? Because I don't think that's Ancelotti at all. So he's operating in this sort of old-fashioned, but still somewhat effective method. I mean, Real Madrid are top of La Liga right now, so he's still having success. I wonder how much longer he will have success. I wonder with how soccer has changed and how Pep and Klopp and, and Cruyff before them have changed the game and made it a bit more rigid. And st there's still framework within, there's still freedom, excuse me, within a tactical framework and within rigidity almost. But I wonder how much longer managers like Ancelotti, and to an, an American extent, managers like Bruce Arena, as the comparison you made, Taylor, I wonder how much longer they'll be able to exist in their current form. I don't know. So that's not really related yeah. to the question here, but just something that this question got me thinking about. Joe, doesn't, he feels like maybe the next, Italy manager after Mancini <laughs> departs. That That's kind of where I feel like he heads after Real Madrid. Could be wrong. Maybe he just keeps bouncing around to big clubs and really like like, like Leipzig, for example, where Jesse Marsh has been making everybody, like the reporting from Raphael Honigstein on Marsh getting sacked was, was excellent. And it spoke to Marsh trying to kind of play this 
uh, like the aggressive, everybody presses, everybody runs, we play very direct style. Leipzig had been building towards a, no, we have possession and we move the ball and we play pretty attacking soccer and we're at odds with each other. But Marsh made everybody run. Maybe Ancelotti can come in and sort of use that fitness and play that attacking soccer. Like, that's where I think he thrives. Short of that, I do feel like international management allows him to have that just like building bonds with players and making everybody feel happy and not kind of overburdening them with with work in if you're in a World Cup in a very like tight time window when you don't have as much like opportunity to work on uh, training and set pieces and like in-game adjustments, that sort of sort of thing. Ancelotti's a good cop and good cop, bad cop. I think that's yeah, sort of exactly. what, we, what we've gotten to here. <laughs> Sounds like we have. I'm very proud of all of us, by the way, for not using the word eyebrows at any point during this answer. So well done to you all. But he is, I think, one note that it's, it doesn't count for much, but he's cool. Don't you think he'd oh. be cool to hang around with? Don't you think he'd be cool to work with? I think I would have a lot of respect for him if I this, were one of his players, right? This is probably not going to come off like I won't be able to do it justice. But I was in a press conference with him in a preseason tour game once, and they were demanding to know, is this move going to happen? Is this move going to happen? And he kept and like his answer in English was just like, we have to wait. We have to wait. And then he got a third question about, I forget who the player was. And he, he did. He raised the eyebrow and stared at them like unspoken, like without speaking for five seconds. And then just said, like, is it a, is it a problem for you to wait? And, the, and it was just like the whole room kind of chuckled. And it was this <laughs> like savage, dry moment that was also very like friendly in a way. And he is very good at sort of splitting that difference. Yeah. He's very hard to dislike. I think we can all agree on that one. Uh, thank you very much, Joshua, for the question. Here's one from Hayes Tiling Schroyers. Apologies, Hayes, if I've uh, uh, messed up your uh, pronunciation there. But does anything happen to the player's salary, to a player's salary, when a team is relegated? Once a team is no longer playing in the Premier League, it no longer has the same revenue stream, and it seems that meeting payroll could be a problem. Do contracts specify a lower salary amount if the club is relegated? How does this work, asks Hayes, and does the opposite happen when clubs are promoted? Thank you very much. My brief uh, notes at the start of this one, gents, is it depends, uh, <laughs> is the answer. It depends are you on the- Sunderland? <laughs> there you go. There's a good example. It depends on the competence and the foresight of the organisation. And I think one way to look at it is relegation is often financially incentive. Incentivized. Individual contracts of players often have a relegation clause, which will lower their salary should they are should they be relegated, and also a staying up bonus. So there are there are financial incentives either way. And to look at two examples from the Premier League at the moment, Watford um, just relatively recently announced that all their contracts have a fifty percent wage reduction built in um, in case of relegation. So they have that clause. That's where probably wise for them. It's probably wise for them. They do like to yo-yo. And uh, yeah, so basically their wage bill halves when they when they drop down to the championship. <laughs> um, as for Newcastle, who are also in a bit of a sticky situation, uh, according to the Telegraph, none of their contracts have relegation clauses. Oh not a single one. So they will carry their full wage bill down if and when they drop this season. They've got players like Miguel Almiron on about 80000 a week, which is a lot for the championship. But hey, Newcastle, they can print that money if they want to. So maybe don't feel too sorry for them and as Taylor mentioned there Sunderland is a good case example of uh, how not to do it they didn't have enough of these relegation clauses they nearly went bust uh, dropped down to league one bit of a disaster Taylor yeah and I understand how like why the documentary went about vilifying Jack Rodwell for refusing to take the pay cut because he wasn't playing at the time so take the pay cut and it allows us to be more functional but simultaneously you did it to yourself, and it's not dissimilar from Barcelona asking everyone to take pay cuts, and we just assumed Messi would play for free. There's a level of arrogance there that maybe covers a lack of planning, and I think clubs that do have certain clauses in place, maybe there's an argument that like you're preparing to fail by preparing for relegation, but simultaneously, I think you're also just being a smart club that sees all the potential options and all the potential outcomes and tries to plan for them accordingly. So I think clubs that do have release clauses in place for relegation, I think that's pretty smart. And that can get you out of those big, big deals if you know that you're not going to be able to make them uh, continue on in the lower division, especially because there are even tighter financial controls, as I understand it. Uh, I do think that there are some players that will have releg- relegation clauses uh, built into their contract for 
uh, reduction in wages, especially if they have been uh, from a promoted team. I think you can kind of build it accordingly. You could basically put in anything you want into the contract as long as the player and their agent and representatives agree. Um, I don't know if there's anything aside from like promotion bonuses that that covers that that move upwards unless it's built into the contract but at least there you do have those sort of bonuses and performance incentives to uh maybe reward you a little bit for that extra effort yeah, yeah. and and if i if i can just uh, address the bit of the question that says um you know that meeting payroll could be a problem for teams that go that yeah. suffer relegation from the premier league i think something we should mention there are the existence of parachute payments as well mm. that that do help with that so for anyone who doesn't know Parachute payments are designed to mitigate the the blow of dropping out of the the Premier League and to avoid those situations where where clubs can't meet their their payroll. And I think I was looking into it. it the pay, uh, parachute payments last for three years after relegation, so the percentage drops progressively over that period. It's fifty five percent of your Premier League revenue in the first year, forty five in year two, and then twenty percent in in the third year. Um, and in nineteen twenty season, which was the the season I, I could find the most recent numbers for a total of seven clubs received 248 million pounds between them so that's that's quite a lot of money and i guess that would maybe protect clubs who don't have those relegation clauses and and contracts of their players yeah. from not being able to meet the payroll and if you're going to say well why don't every single team have a relegation clause in every single contract then it's not it's, i don't think it's quite as easy as that because they have to try and attract the players and if there are relegation clauses and you're telling them you're going to lose half your money if we go down, then it might be harder to attract the caliber of player that a certain team wants. So there is that consideration there. It's not complete stupidity on the part of the uh, front office of these teams that don't have those clauses. Um, and in terms of does the opposite happen when clubs are promoted? Do, do their, their wages go up? I, I, as Taylor touched on there, I think it does work on a case-by-case basis and there will be bonuses for when players go up. But also you've got to think about the uh, the role of the agent and the way they will probably say, oh, my you know, my client's going to have a lot more interest now. Uh, we want a new contract right now. We need an extension. We need, a, we need to re-up some of that salary. So I think that sort of thing does happen quite a lot as well. And do really, into- you... Do any of you have thoughts? Sorry, Ryan. I was just wondering before, uh, in case we're moving on. Do any of you have an idea of a club that was least prepared for relegation in that way? Because we've seen plenty of clubs sort of get relegated and then get relegated again. And sometimes that's because financial problems started in the Premier League or it was just other sort of influences. It wasn't necessarily that wage bill and how they hadn't been prepared for it. But I'm not, I can't really think of any that were just huge shocks to go down and totally unprepared for it for it from a financial standpoint you get teams like say like your boltons where they loaded up on star mm-hmm. players certainly a long time ago and then they it becomes unsustainable i think that may be yeah. an example but as for you couldn't necessarily say that it wasn't expected that bolton would drop out of the premier league when they did uh, which is a little while ago now but um it has that cascading effect i suppose when yeah. you just don't prepare for that kind of thing and- I've got a suggestion that maybe looks at things slightly differently. So I think if you drop out of the Premier League, obviously that can happen. You know, it's difficult to stay in the Premier League, but you want to maybe keep the advantage that having the Premier League revenue has given you so that you become, a, a you're always at the top level of the championship. So you're always competing to get back into the Premier League. And I think the team recently that hasn't done that for me is Huddersfield who after a couple seasons in the Premier League have basically just gone back to being a kind of mid-table championship team it does it doesn't really feel like in a in the long term that they they gained any real advantage for being in the Premier League for a couple seasons so it it feels like they've kind of squandered that opportunity yeah, that's fair. What about Sheffield United, Graham? Could you put them in that same boat? Because they didn't really invest heavily in the yeah. Premier League money, and maybe you could ask you could argue they're a middling championship team now. You you could, but that that's this is the, only their first season. They got relegated last season, didn't they? So yeah. I, I guess maybe we'll wait and see what happens this season, and maybe the season after before we judge them. But yeah, they're certainly they, they could be in that conversation. Fair point, Hayes. Thank you very much for that question. We'll have a couple more when we come back after this break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are taking your listener questions, including but not limited to this one from Luke Zilstra. Luke says, if the USMNT were in the Premier League for this season, where would they finish? Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Popcorn gif at the ready. Okay, I'm going to lay my stall out first here, gents. I think, we look at the players who are in in that uh, USMNT roster at the moment, players who do well in the Premiership or who are doing very well. You've got your Pulisic, your Stephens, your Adams, your Zimmermans, arguably, your Yedlins, your Mooses, your Weyers, your Peppies. I think the USMNT, if I had to do a, a knee-jerk reaction to that question, Everton Cup, just outside the top six for me, is my guess. That's where I'm putting my stall out. Taylor Rockwell, where's your stall? I think you're more optimistic than I am. I think I would probably have them closer to mid-table, but I think the difference would be that if we're talking about them playing in the Premier League, then that means they're getting to play as a club, which means they're getting uh, a ton more training. Joe is excited, and I'm excited, about uh, this current camp getting like two weeks together, because that's so rare to get so much time uh, with a national team in camp. So I do think that probably over the course of the season, they end up being better than I would think they would be. So maybe, Ryan, you are right in moving them higher up. I know there's going to be some eye rolls from folks who think, no, they'd be relegation candidates. I just don't think that's the case with the talent they have. And I think that if they did play a full season together, I have to believe that they go pretty far in whatever tournament comes after that season because of that level of chemistry and camaraderie. I've talked about this on a couple different occasions. I will mention it again. If you look at that 94 World Cup team for the United States, all of those guys have over 100 caps, which is fairly rare. It's because they were all brought back prior to MLS starting, prior to that World Cup, which the U.S. knew it would be hosting, didn't want to get embarrassed, and they basically trained as a club. And that is the team that uh, went like way further than expected in 94 uh, went pretty far in the Copa America and has had success, had success because of that level of uh, chemistry basically. So I think they would probably be better than they might seem like in their current form because of that familiarity. Yeah. That's a very important point, Taylor, the difference between training as a national team and training as a domestic team week in, week out, that familiarity, that chemistry, which is why I landed just outside the top six, sixth or seventh or so, because of the quality of players on that roster and the fact that they would build together week in, week out. Joe Lowry, I come to you. I'm in a similar spot to you, Ryan, I think, Taylor, maybe where you ended up. I have them somewhere around seventh or down to 11th, somewhere in that range, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. I don't think they're top six. There's no chance this team is better than City or Liverpool or Chelsea. So that at least has them fourth as the highest 
West Ham's having a really strong season and, and the way they play under David Moyes is, is pretty well established at this point. Tottenham and Manchester United, I think, will improve over the second portion of the season. They have a ton of talent. I, th- I think more talent than the U.S. men's national team does. But after that, man, I'd, I wouldn't be surprised to see them finish in that range after that group of top teams that are either having good seasons or that are just stacked on talent. I think there's enough quality in this U.S. group. If they're given a bit more time to work together, maybe they can stay a little healthier. I don't know. But I think this team could do reasonably well, maybe, just maybe, push for the Europa League in, in fifth. But I think 7-11 to 11 is about the right spot for them. Joe, are you a Lululemon store? Because I like what you're selling there. <laughs> Very nice. Graham, how do you feel? <laughs> so I'm, uh, it might not be too surprising to learn that I am definitely the pessimist in this group, on, <laughs> in this question. <laughs> uh, I'm not as hot on on the US's chances in the Premier League as you guys are. They wouldn't they wouldn't get relegated as the first, th- first thing I would say. But I think when I look through the squads in the Premier League, yes, the, the US has a lot of good individual talent and I think that would that would probably put them around the mid table mark. I I think they would be in I still think they would be in the bottom half of that mid table range though. And and the thing that I can't get away from is I would be worried about the lack of a, a proven number nine who can score fifteen goals in the Premier League. Maybe yeah. Ricardo Pepe is that player. Like I know there's a lot of excitement about him in the US and he could grow into that player. He's obviously still young. There's links the you know transfer speculation linking him to European clubs maybe he is that player but I'm just not totally convinced that he gets 15 Premier League goals in a season and I think teams that lack that sort of player tend to struggle in the Premier League so Hang that's on, the, that, does don't Man City have that problem with not approving number nine necessarily yeah, yeah but they, Graham they've got like five players that score 15 goals a season <laughs> they're just not all number nines uh, but yeah I, that's the thing that I reckon would hold back the US in, in, in the Premier League so I'm I'm saying the 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 bottom half of the table mid table range is where they would finish is my prediction hmm, interesting all right let me slightly flip this question I'm going to spring this one on you Taylor if you had to compare the USMNT to a team in the Premier League in terms of maybe attainment or maybe even style who would you most liken them to ah uh, let me think so I think we're we're talking four three three we're talking some level of complexity to the tactics but also can be kind of physical and run really hard work really hard can be defensive maybe wolves like i i think the formations are different yeah Yeah, wolves yeah brighton is probably a good shout in there yeah so like yeah the eight to nine range uh i i haven't seen enough brentford to say brentford one way or the other maybe palace as well i could see them as like a palace adjacent team uh, so probably that that range for me. Come on, don't don't be mean. No one wants to be Palace adjacent. Joe, what do you think? <laughs> Brighton it's for me. Wimbledon. <laughs> <laughs> it's Brighton for me stylistically. I don't think the U.S. has a lot in common with with Pat. Well, I guess Palace under Patrick Vieira. Shoot, that is a little bit That's different. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So so Palace isn't a bad one stylistically either. With how we know Patrick Vieira wants his teams to play. Uh, Wolves, I don't think I'd, I'd go quite that far, but Brighton's not a bad one under Graham Potter. They really like to possess maybe a, maybe a bit more than, than the U.S. does under Greg Berhalter, but I think stylistically it's not a bad comparison. Joe, I now have a question. I'm now fascinated by this idea. So if the U.S. were playing in the Premier League, and to Graham's point, we started the season with Ricardo Pepe as our number nine. I think it's safe to say that it would be a rocky start and it would require that sort of like, nope, we're sticking with it. We're going to figure some things out. We're going to grind our way through. And by hopefully November, December, we've gotten ourselves into the form we need to be to be competitive enough for the rest of the season. But if things took a turn and results weren't great, is Patrick Vieira the Premier League replacement for this U.S. national team? Maybe. Like if they sack Greg Berhalter. Does that make a lot of sense? Because that yeah. makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I, I've always enjoyed watching Patrick Vieira's teams, even you know, lacking success a little bit at Nice. And now here with Crystal mm-hmm. Palace, I think there's a lot of exciting things going on there, even if they're not exactly in the top half of the table. Taylor, yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be mad at that at all. I don't think Greg Barotha would be all that pleased. <laughs> we, but I mean, Patrick Vieira is not, not a bad coach at all. We have gone into deep hypothesis here, where not only are we predicting where the USMNT would finish in the Premier League, but if they sack Berhalter, say Jose. Who would be their say manager. Say Jose, Graham. Say it. <laughs> it's Jose, yeah, definitely. I mean... No, there's no I mean. There's no I mean, Taylor. There's no there's, I mean. Like, Jose Mourinho <laughs> no, has the no. biggest chip on his shoulder, and the United States does really well when people, when they feel like people aren't taking them seriously, when they're being disrespected. You put those two together... 
I mean, I don't want it to happen because I think it could just be equally catastrophic. But there's an argument for Jose as the U.S. national team coach. I don't think it happens. I just am surprised by how okay I would be with Patrick Vieira, a name that I have never put in that U.S. conversation. Taylor, how dare you suggest that the rest of the world doesn't take the United States seriously in any manner? Goodness me. Goodness <laughs> I mean, me. I, I, know, I know who we are. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, thank you very much, Luke, for that question. That's a really good one. Thank you for that. Oh, by the way, Mr. Sunshine, Graham, did we get your comparison for um, a Premier League team for the USMNT? Is it, is it Norwich for you? Uh, Norwich. Um, yeah, Norwich. Let's just go for it. Newcastle or Norwich? Yeah, is my comparison. <laughs> Wonderful. Ryan, we made Honey Boo Boo and Jersey Shore famous. Like, uh, sometimes we're hard to take seriously, is I, I guess what I'm saying. I just pray that other countries don't know about Honey Boo Boo. I just really hope that's the case. I don't know if it is, I, but I'm, I'm hoping. I, I feel like she'd go over well in Scotland. From everything that Graham has explained to me about Scotland, where they have like barbers and grocery stores in the same area, I feel like Honey Boo Boo would do fine there. So oh I have no idea who, who Honey Boo Boo yes. is or was. Yeah, I, I thought I thought it, you were talking about like a mascot for a cereal or something, mm-hmm. like a breakfast cereal. <laughs> exactly. That does absolutely. Yeah, Graham, can you say Honey Boo Boo as a cereal in in Scot- Scottish, please? Like use that Scottish accent and say Honey Boo Boo. Honey Boo Boo. Yeah, that feels like a cereal. That feels like a cereal to me. <laughs> All right. On that note, we'll move on to a question here from Alex Izbicki, who says there's a lot of talk about the moves Newcastle will make in the January window with all their new money, but they're currently last in the Premier League. Don't they know it? Are they set up for one of the biggest second half turnarounds of all time? No. Uh, <laughs> good, good answer there. That's a succinct one, Graham. That's where I was going to. What are the other legendary second half recoveries or collapses in soccer? Asks Alex. Uh, I think I err on the side of Graham with the no. Uh, for Newcastle there. Maybe a rebuild is due there, but I will pitch straight away the biggest ever turnaround, uh, certainly in Premier League history for me, Leicester City 2014-15. They were bottom 20th in the Premier League from the end of November 2014 until mid-April 2015. That's a very long time to be dead and buried in the Premier League. They won seven of their last nine and somehow stayed up under Nigel Pearson. Uh, Pearson was then sacked that summer because, sure. Uh, And then you'll know um, Leicester City had rather good fortunes the following season, finishing uh, not 20th, but first in the Premier League. And people do forget that part of that story was started the season before with Nigel Pearson uh, and his ostrich comments and whatnot. And he started, arguably, their incredible turnaround that led to history. Uh, But Graham, I'll come to you first to answer this question as well. No side in Premier League history has failed to win until December and avoided relegation. Newcastle getting their first win in December. Yeah, and I think the only case that Newcastle can take encouragement from in the Premier League is from West Brom's great escape in Mm. 2004-2005, where they they became the first team in Premier League history to avoid relegation, having been bottom at Christmas. Um, And so I think... Newcastle should take encouragement from that. The January window is, is going to be big for them. I'm looking forward to see what crazy, crazy moves they do and what players end up there out of sheer desperation. Um, and I am, um, I do question the Eddie Howe appointment. He doesn't seem like, he doesn't seem like the sort of manager that they needed at this point. I mean, they were going for Unai Emery because he, they needed an organizer. Newcastle have conceded the second most goals in the Premier League this season. And Eddie Howe's Bournemouth team went down a couple of seasons ago because of their dreadful defensive record. On top of that, Howe's the sort of manager who needs a bit of time to get his ideas across and Newcastle just don't have time at all. So I would be surprised if Newcastle pulled off a, a, a West Brom. Um, addressing the question with one of my, my favourite sort of second half turnarounds of, of, of all time, or actually this is a collapse, is... Um, I have to mention Hibernian in Scotland in the 2013-14 season. This was a truly monumental collapse. So on the 15th of February, they were sitting in sixth place in the table. And by the end of the season, after a 13-game losing run, they had been relegated to the second tier. And that was a, a an absolutely catastrophic run of fixtures that is still talked about to this day and has actually kind of affected the the identity of that club. People talking talk about hibsing it a lot in Scottish football, which means basically just to collapse, whether that be in a game or a run of fixtures. So yeah, that's one I would mention. Very good. Uh, Taylor, your thoughts on this question? Newcastle and the uh, the turnaround, the, the neutral's mm-hmm. favourite Newcastle. Can we see this uh, redemption story from them? 
Uh, I think they probably finish like lower mid table. I think they will be fine because I do think they'll be able to spend a little bit in January. I'm still unclear on what exactly they're allowed to spend because of the kind of stipulations about existing sponsorships and whatnot. But I think just the awareness for players that there is so much money potentially at Newcastle, I think will allow them to get some people on some contracts that they might not otherwise have been able to get. Or at the very least, it shows that there will be stability there long term in a way that there wouldn't have been under Mike Ashley. So I think that they will be fine. Uh, I went the other route and just focused on teams that had sort of catastrophic falls. And I would say two uh, to note for me would be FC Dallas in 2017. Joe, I'm, I'm Stepping into your territory. Did you have this one or no? No. Is there going to be a relegation Good. involved here? Uh, <laughs> no, mostly just like going from being top of the Western Conference to missing the playoffs entirely. And I think taking four points from a possible 30 or something like that over that time period. Okay. Uh, I, so I, I just didn't know. Sort of- I just didn't know if Ted got his wish. I didn't I didn't know what was going on here, Taylor. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, no, he did not. Okay. Unfortunately for Ted, but fortunately for FC Dallas. But to go from, I think they were Supporter Shield winners the season before and then started off so well and then kind of plummeted to missing the playoffs, outscored 23 to 8, uh, winless in 10 games, not great for them there. And then one of my favorites, Real Madrid, 2003-2004, the height of the Galacticos era, Zinedine Zidane, David Beckham, original Ronaldo, 12 games to go. They have a 12-point lead. Uh, they took two points from their first three games of March, and then I think they lost seven of their last ten league games to completely slump to fourth place. So that Madrid team to fall off that way proves that anybody can fall off and anybody can find form. Uh, just ask Fulham with their great escape. I thought you were about to say Real Madrid were relegated with David Beckham. I didn't remember that, um, Taylor. But yeah, that's a good one as well. Joe, your thoughts on this one? So first, Newcastle, to go all the way back to our Premier League previews before the season started, I I wanted to come in guns blazing and say they were going to be relegated. And I don't remember where we landed, but I'm still going to say that now. I don't know that they're going to dive. Uh, I don't know that I don't know that they're going to climb out of the the bottom three here. I wouldn't be surprised though to get to what Taylor was saying with some of the things they can potentially spend. But as far as I have one best escape that hasn't been mentioned yet. We've talked about some collapses. We've talked about some recoveries. Mine comes outside of England. It's Crotone in Syria, 2016, 2017. Their first ever season in Syria. They'd only spent two weeks outside of the relegation zone over the entire season. The first week and the last week. They managed to get points from games against Milan and Inter to close out the year. Then finally, on the final match day, they beat Lazio to survive. They beat them 3-1. They were relegated the next year, so it's not entirely a Cinderella story. But they have yo-yoed a bit since then. They're currently back in Serie B. But uh, that that escape beating three much bigger, uh, much more well-known teams over the course of the last few weeks of the season and escaping relegation after only having been outside of that that zone for the first week of the season and then finally that last week I think is a good story. Excellent. A great way to close out that question from Alex. Thank you very much, Joseph, for that. And that just about wraps up our – you know what? One more bonus question I'm going to throw in here. Uh, Graham, I don't know if you saw on uh, on our running order from Kevin Tolley, who asks, uh, is it just me or do half the Scotland team look like rugby players? Graham, discuss. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I will readily admit that Grant Hanley yep. looks like a rugby player. Like that was his calling in life was to was to play rugby. Beyond that, I have to say I'm, I'm struggling a little bit just because our team is full of tiny little Billy Gilmore and Callum McGregor types. But uh, yeah, it is, it is funny in Scotland how when you're at school, you get separated into football players and rugby players. And those two social circles don't really mix at all, yeah. which is why like reading that question just even though it shouldn't, just instantly kind of puts my back up a little bit. Like, how dare you compare anyone in Scottish football to rugby? Uh, and I think, you know, it, while I was in school, you got the rugby players who would congregate around the Aid vending machine and then the rugby players who would drink pints out their shoes or whatever. I, I don't really know what rugby players do. But yeah, may, maybe Grant Hanley. I'll certainly give you uh, Grant Hanley. Do you all hear why Honey Boo Boo would do well in Scotland? Like, do you hear the things that Graham just said? <laughs> would Honey oh. Boo Boo congregate around the Lucas A vending machine, Taylor? Or maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. I, 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 um, I also went to a school that only had a rugby team, Graham. We didn't even have a soccer team in that school. So it was very, very hard as an existence for me because I did not like rugby. And there was also a rugby clique who uh, uh, probably had their own vending machine as well. Uh, but Did you go to school in Wales? <laughs> I went to school in London, so it's even yeah, weirder. Ryan, 
Was it was it was it just called Washington Academy or what did you all call <laughs> the name of your school? No joke, our colors were the same colors as the Harry Potter school, the maroon oh and yellow. Oh my god, you went to Hogwarts. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, uh, yeah, so Graham, what does a rugby player look like? Just to give a, a mental image to to our listener. Uh, Big and burly, and I would say quite hairy, which uh, is Grant Hanley, basically. Cauliflower okay. <laughs> is like a like an MMA fighter, that yeah. kind of deal. I right? saw I saw um, Diogo Dallo wearing a like a mouth guard uh, at the weekend there, playing for Manchester United, which I hadn't really seen before. So maybe he's maybe he's another rugby player in the Premier League. All right, let me let me throw this out there. Kevin Kevin didn't say are uh, they're built like rugby players. He just says they look like rugby players. And I will I will I will say this like. When I think of rugby players in the national anthem, when you get them like pregame, the haka obviously coming to, to mind here. There is an intensity about rugby players. There is more of that, like, I have to be fired up and look intimidating from the jump if I want to do well. And certainly some footballers go that way. Roy Keane, chief among them. But I, I think oftentimes you'll also see like, you know, arms around each other, singing the national anthem. It can be a bit more... I don't know. It, it's it's not quite as like I will hurt you vibes. And yet every <laughs> single time I've seen Scotland before a game, the their football team does seem to have that same level of intensity and that sort of dour vibe of we might yeah. not win, but we will make you like feel pain along the way. So yeah. maybe that's where the rugby <laughs> comparison comes in. I can see I can see that with Andy Robertson. So Andy yes. Robertson definitely has that vibe. So yes. he, I wouldn't say he has like the physical build of a rugby player, but maybe like the the vibe yes. of a rugby player. The other one I'd mention is is like John McGinn has the backside of a rugby player. <laughs> But he is about four foot nothing, so uh, I'm not sure he would be that 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 effective in rugby. But yeah, he's you if you're right building a rugby legs. player from Premier League footballers, you would definitely take uh, John McGinn's backside. All right, John McGinn's backside is the signal for us to get out of here. I think. Thank you very much, <laughs> listeners, for all your questions. If you do have any to, sub- to submit, it's totalsoccershow.com and go check out the form and uh, give us a question. But in the meantime, Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much. Right back at you, buddy. Joe Lowry, a pleasure as always. Oh, thank you, Ryan. Graham Rutherford, very sorry for your MacBook-based loss, but thank you very much all the same. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and not uh, blow up my house between now and the next time we speak. Thank you, Ryan. That's a solid eight we'll try not to. Thanks, listener. Bye. The evil F. We got the evil F. There, we got it. <laughs> there we go. Thank you, Joe. 